Attention all mortals, veterans and civilians alike. It's time to buckle up and get ready for a wild ride because you just tuned in to the Swandingo Files. Your host, Steven Swanson, is here to help you navigate the crazy world of transitioning from military life to civilian life. And let me tell you, it's a bumpy road, but with a little bit of humor and a lot of determination, we can make it through together. And welcome back to another episode of the Swan Dingo Files. Today I have Dan Nicholson, uh, one of the top CPAs in the in the country. And his company is Nth Degree CPAs. He's written a book, and he's here to join me and give us some advice and kind of a deep dive into you know what life is, what his life is like. So how's it going, Dan? It's going well. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Well, I'm glad you took time out of your busy day. I know you're very successful. Um, a lot of people don't like to share their story and. It's nice to get some people that can give some real advice to veterans and just the general community. So um, today we're just going to kind of discuss, of course, your book, um, why you want to share information with everybody instead of keep it to yourself, um, why you became a CPA, and exactly what a CPA does. I mean, it, we all hear the title, but I don't think anybody actually knows fully the extent of your skills. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you can just begin, like, why did you want to become a CPA instead of an astronaut? <laughs> A series of uh, series of uh, wrong decisions, I guess. Um, <laughs> well, it's sort of foreshadowing. Uh, grew up as a painfully, painfully shy kid. Um, my parents were here; they would add like five more painfully shy's to that. <laughs> I come by a little honestly. My parents are a little bit shy themselves, so. Uh, but I always had this interest in entrepreneurship. I think it's just sort of the sense of being able to define my own future that drew me into into the or made me attracted to entrepreneurship. And uh, so I went to college. I'm the first person in my family to go to college. Um, pretty much my entire family, except for me, are vets. So uh, uh, shout out to all, to all you guys. I'm the uh, the uh, the exception for sure um and uh i originally went in as a marketing major and there are a few inflection points in my life that kind of really changed the trajectory of my career at the end of my freshman year i got this email about uh ups the shipping company about scholarship opportunities and it's from the business school and it listed out some marketing, like a bunch of uh, business roles, and one of them was for marketing. And so I go, and it's at a set a hub. I don't know if you've ever been to one of these like shipping hubs. But like I said, I, I come from a blue collar family. So dad, after he finished the military, was a journeyman machinist for 45 years. Um, and so I. So I'm used to that type of environment, but I, I show up thinking I'm interviewing for like these business roles and I've got a suit on. I've got my like resumes and cover letters. I just finished my freshman year and I took like a business communications class. So I followed all the stuff. I sit down and, and it's a whole presentation about, uh, jobs unloading and loading trucks and sorting packages and certainly not below me by any means. And, uh, but I get to the end of it. 
I'm the only person in the suit, by the way. I look like a fool. Like everyone else is in jorts and like a tank tops, and here I am. And I like I raise my hand and I'm like, hey, like this is cool. Um, but I have this print off here about these like marketing jobs. And I'm like, well, we I don't know what you're talking, but we don't know what you're talking about. But there's two guys out here from the finance department. Like you could go talk to them. And uh, I'm living at home, commuting to college. Like I need the scholarship, scholarship money, and uh, and so I go out there, talk to these guys, show them the print offs. An hour later, they say, "Hey, you know, we have a uh, part-time finance supervisor role, and we think you'd be a good fit." And uh, I relentlessly follow up on this for the next three or four weeks. End up landing this job. And that was this, I'm managing 20 to 25 people, completely autonomous, reporting up to the like Northwest controller for, uh, for UPS again, 19. And, uh, that was this inflection point where it's, I started reconsidering long story long kind of, uh, <laughs> options and, uh, changed my major to accounting at that point. Okay, uh, and what college did you go to, or what were you going to? Uh, I went to a school called Seattle University. I grew conveniently in Seattle. Uh, <laughs> unbeknownst, unbeknownst to me, it was a top 12 accounting program in the country. Oh, wow. That's and, cool. Uh, and uh, so I, I, I changed majors. Uh, the accounting department also recruited me and take taking me out to lunch and like I said I was a painfully painfully shy kid and all of a sudden now I'm managing 25 people and I'm getting all this attention from uh at, at 19 years old you're doing that wow I, that's young especially you know considering the field is I don't know I, I guess for a lot of people it kind of seemed a little bit intimidating financial you got to be on your toes really know what you're doing the, the, it's strange. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Like when I explain it still now at 42, it doesn't make a lot of sense other than I have this mentor now and he says, uh, like, game recognized game. Like, you were hungry and you, you were following up and demonstrating probably qualities that graduates, other folks weren't and you made it but clear that you were willing to put in the put in the effort and pay the price and for whatever reason, right time, right place. And, uh, yeah, and that's I think that's key is just be hungry for it, your drive, and you know prove your or show your skills. And I mean, at 19 years old to do something like that, that's pretty rare. I don't think there's too many 19 year olds out there managing 25 people in a financial department. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it is uh, it is strange, and it and it changed the whole trajectory of my like I said, my life, my career, where I'm at now, um, because I all of a sudden had this huge rush of confidence. I didn't see myself necessarily as like a 4.0 student. I didn't see myself as like I'm going to be leading these organizations at a young age, and now all of a sudden I'm I'm doing that, and people believe in me, and. And that just having 
a couple people just to believe believe in me in that point. I felt like an outsider. Well, you're definitely an insider now uh, to a lot of groups from, from what I understand. So uh, when did you finish your college? I graduated in uh, 2003. I ended up uh, uh, double majoring, so CPA shifted and they required five years of education. It sort of knew when I was there, so I, again, this is like a snapshot of my personality. So I schemed and I figured out basically how can I finish the five years of requirement in four years. And so I figured out, like, I take a summer school here, take an extra class, and kind of compiled a bunch of stuff that um, allowed me to finish it in four years. Because, again, I, I don't come from a family that has a bunch of money, and and uh, I was paying for My parents were helping out with books and parking, and, and uh, otherwise I was just hustling. So, um, so you finished your schooling as CPA. What is a CPA's abilities and what all can they do for people? Yeah, so a CPA is accountant. Just remember, too, I don't know anything about it, and most of my listeners don't know anything about a CPA. So, let's, yeah. We're kind of a dying breed. 75% of CPAs are expected to retire in the next five to seven years. That's, ex- that's compounded during COVID. Um, a lot of people just retired, so there's been uh, over 400,000 accountants who've left the profession in the last two years in the U.S. alone. So there's a shrinking population of us. Uh, to, a CPA can perform a, a few different functions. Um, public accounting, that whole concept is um, um, uh, someone who's auditing your books, so I'm signing off that these books are good and investors can rely on them. That's what kind of a lot of the public accounting world is. Tax preparation, planning, signing returns, talking to the IRS. Uh, there's a surprising number of Fortune 500 CEOs, actually, who are CPAs or used to be CPAs. So because accounting is sort of the nuts and bolts of business, like it's the reporting and understanding of the economics of the business. And so I ultimately kind of chose to go down that path uh, because I thought it was just going to be the best skill set to be, to lead a business. And why is it that it's a, why do you think it's dying so fast or dying profession? Kind of concerning. They, 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 uh, in the early part of, um, the 2000s, they added this fifth year of education requirement, and that made it, you know, it's almost like a privilege to be able to afford to go to school for five years, right? I mean, in, in my case, I had to figure out how to do it in four years, go into a master's program or just wasn't really something that I felt like economically I could afford. So, one, there's a cost to doing it both in terms of your time and money, but also do I really want to pick a profession that requires a fifth year? Like It's a deterrent for a lot of you know, young kids. I mean, colleges in general, people are losing interest in do I really need to go to college? And then you're like, okay, well, let's add another year on top of that. <laughs> so there's that. The 
the average time it takes to study to pass the test is 450 to 600 hours. Uh, and even then, the first time pass rate is 12 percent. Uh, and so lower than every other professional exam, including the bar to become an attorney. So one out of eight people pass the entire test the first time. Um, they tried to make it more accessible. It used to be, this is where I sound like an old guy. Well, it used to be in my day, there's these four sections to the test and you would, you would go uh, and take all four sections over two days. So like nine hours one day, eight hours the next day. So it's a grueling like 17 hours of testing. And um, you had to pass at least two of the four sections. There's all these kind of aspects to it. Super grueling. So they said, okay, we're going to let you take the test in individual sections, kind of one at a time. And uh, in doing so, they actually made the test harder. So there's all these roadblocks that are like, this is not a very attractive thing. You know what? If I'm going to put in all this work, maybe I'm just going to go uh, work in like computer science or, uh, you know, get a job at a tech company or do some other things where the starting pay would be, you know, higher than what you might get as a CPA anyways. So a bunch of those factors that basically all summarize to it's really freaking hard to become a CPA and then your reward is like, now I get to work like 60 to 80 hours a week. Well, that doesn't sound like much fun. I guess I can see why, but clearly you've made it. You made a very good, successful career out of it. Uh, what do you attribute your success to? Cause we all know that you're one of the top CPAs in the country. So how did you get, how did you become so successful? Well, I, I was. Uh, another kind of inflection point in my life, the end of my, the start of my senior year, the school approached me and nominated me for this fellowship at the board that writes all the accounting standards in the U.S. The closest equivalent would be you finish law school and you go and you clerk for the Supreme Court. So some people have heard of that. This is sort of the equivalent of, of that. I ended up getting that fellowship and it was a, again, this inflection point. And it was a huge growth point for me because there were seven of us. The other six came from like the top six programs and their dads were like the CFO of the biggest insurance company in the world and like the top cardiologist in the U.S. And they all got like Audis or almost all. Well, many of them got like, you know, Audis and BMWs when they graduated college. And I pull up in like my Honda Civic that I drove across the country. Uh, and strangely though, see, even though I didn't have the pedigree and the family and I didn't go to one of the top five schools, uh, arguably I was given the hardest, uh, hardest project. And they told me, uh, during the interview, they put me against my competition. It's like we had to go out to lunch and dinner together while we're basically being interviewed. And my direct competitor uh, was at the number two overall ranked accounting program. And they, every year up to this point, had placed uh, someone in this fellowship program. And they told me after the fact, they said, you know, you know, the reason why you got the job is he was trying to compete with you 
but you were just like you didn't take any of you like you weren't trying to compete with him. You were just there to show up and demonstrate what you were capable of doing. And so he was making some like subtle jabs and like again, I grew up blue collar, like uh, in the machine shop. It's like this is some petty BS. Uh, and like grew up grew up more humble than he did. More, more humble and. Uh, more sort of like this is like I'm not challenged by your petty little like intellectual barbs. Like if anything, I find that to be like what's if anything, I find that to be very off-putting. Like, I'd agree with you. And, and you seem that type of person. So I just take that as like you must be really insecure. Like, I had to fight my way to get up to this point, so I'm just going to, like, on my own, no one paid for my school, no one, I was commuting, like, I don't need to, I don't need to compete with you. Like, you started from the bottom. I'm going to get there, here on my own merit, and if, and I don't need to get there by trying to, to put you down or make, you know, weird sort of comments at, at, at dinner, like, Either they, they want me on my own merits or they don't. But I can't make up for the fact that I don't have rich parents, so I can't make up for the fact that I didn't go to a top program, so I just got to play my own game. And it turned out that that's what they wanted because ultimately all the other people at the board are PhD. They're much, they need people who are humble because you're doing all the, the dirty work. Um, so that carry that realization I attribute to where I where I am today, which is I don't try to I don't try to pretend that I'm something that I'm not. I, I call it playing your your game, but uh, you know I, I'm proud of my roots. I'm I'm proud I'm proud of the effort that I put in to get to this point, and um, I find pretty consistently that. Uh, my kind of people are attracted to that type of approach rather than a sort of uh, arrogant, let me show you all my credentials. That's funny you mentioned that because we're actually finding that more and more with the people I talk to. Um, it's, it's, had, <clears throat> it's nice to see the mindset change in people that they're more of a humble person. Um, they're not, you know, we don't want to hear about what you done in the past you want to hear what you can do now for now with with us and it's kind of different to hear that like i always thought business ceos like yourself and all the big ones they're always like you know flashy you know let me show you everything i've done in the past it's like now you and you want to bring people with you too which is nice um you're not just hey you know you stay down there in your spot that's uh you're not like that you're you're willing to bring people up with you share your information and your knowledge and try to get people to the same level as you. And that's, I mean, we're finding more people, but I think we need more of that in the United States to lift people up. I completely agree. And, and from my position in, in the work that I do in the capacity of a CPA, I joke that I have some of the most conservative clients in the U.S. I have some of the most liberal. If I put them in the same room, I've had no clients because they kill each other. But when I talked to him, it's like, we actually have a lot in common across my whole client base. 
if we could ignore some of the really hot hot button political topics, like do you guys agree on like ninety plus percent of the things that um but we spend so much time focused on the couple of pieces because it makes for good political fodder that we just get so so divided and it, it just continues to to compound. I find it to be really just unfortunate that we can't get along with people because they have a small <laughs> difference in agree in agreement. And <clears throat> so I know you wrote a book uh called Reading the Game and shares uh it shares some of your experiences and uh you know how to play the game basically. Can you go over that just a little bit? Yeah, so reading the game is kind of my operating system, my way of thinking on how to engineer outcomes that you want or engineer luck. And it came from a place of having to unlearn some things I thought I knew about business. You go to business school and really that system, so there's a quote that I uh, believe strongly in, every system is perfectly designed for the results it gets. So if you don't like the results, you have three choices. You could just be a victim. Unfortunately, that's what most of America lives in. I'm a victim. This is happening to me. Poor me. Um, and the, the problem with that choice is that you're going to remain a victim and you're going to remain getting the outcome that you don't want. So then you're left with, uh, if you don't, if you actually want a different outcome, then you have two real options. One, can I change the system? Typically, the answer is no, at least not in the time frame that you're would be acceptable to you. It's going to take years and years. Um, so if you need an outcome right away then, and you can't change the system, then you have to change your behavior. How do I change my behavior so that I get the outcome I want within the construct of that system? Uh, I learned that in the context of tax planning, tax strategy and finances, and then have learned that that applies in every other domain. So I can give you a really specific example in the tax or financial world, if that's okay. And you can stop me if I get too much in the details. No, go ahead, please. People need to hear it. So so the first point is something that I imagine all your listeners are already aware of. Here in the U.S., small business owners are going to pay the highest average tax rate, 40 to 60 percent. Individual taxpayers, on average, 30 to 50 percent. Big corporations, sophisticated investors, zero to 20%. Most of us are aware of this gap that big corporations, sophisticated investors are paying on a percentage basis very little. Some people get really hung up on that. Uh, like I said, I don't really play the politics uh, game necessarily. I don't really fit in either party at this point, but that's a whole other thing. Uh, this, so the second point to me is where we learn a lot about what we need to do to get it, the outcome that we actually want is if you were to look at the average rate paid by all taxpayers for, on a per year basis and you graph that over the last hundred years, it's basically a flat line, meaning that the average rate is basically unchanged year over year, even though we've had much higher tax rates than we have now and we've had lower tax rates. The average stays roughly the same. And so what do we make of that? Well, what we make of that is that uh, 
when the tax law changes, which it does in various ways every year, sometimes there's big changes, usually not, but there's always some amount of changes that happen every year. Those big corporations and sophisticated investors, people who are, have a lot on the line, they're constantly modifying their behavior to take advantage of the new incentives such that they're always paying roughly the same. They actually have a fiduciary responsibility to do that. You would be sued by your shareholders if you weren't trying to pay the least amount of tax. People get upset about the behaviors of CEOs, but as a CEO, you have a fiduciary responsibility to maximize shareholder value, which is a technical term, but it basically means you have to do everything in your power to return the most amount of money back to your investors. And if you don't, they're going to sue you. So consequently, they make damn sure that they're going to pay the least amount of tax. Make sense? No, no, that, that definitely makes sense. Uh, I mean, I've heard a little bit about it before, but I think you put it a little bit better than what I've heard it so far. So, so here's what we have to do. So here's the problem. So uh, why is it that, so we've established uh, small business owners, individual taxpayers pay the most. Big corporations, sophisticated investors pay the least. Those, that group of people, the investors and big corporations, they're constantly changing their behavior. The, uh, the small business owners and individual taxpayers aren't. They're reacting. They're more in the victim like, this sucks, which anytime you pay your tax bill, everyone thinks it sucks, even if you're pro-raise taxes. Everyone is pissed off when they write that check. Okay. But here's the, here's the, here's the systematic, systemic problem, which is that most individual taxpayers and small business owners, their CPA is what I call an archaeologist. What does an archaeologist do? They just dig up the past. So when they say this year's taxes, they're talking about last year. That's really problematic because if you're all, if the person you're working with is always living in the past, they're never telling you how to change your behavior, which is future based to take advantage of the new benefits. And so you've created a paradigm, a system that guarantees that you're always going to pay the most amount of tax. And so it's a small shift, but you need to move from having an archaeologist to an architect. And that's what you do. And that's what I do in the most basic level. But you can apply the same way of thinking to every domain, fitness. Why am I not getting the results that I want? Well, maybe I'm always living in the past about and dwelling on things, and I need someone to really chart out a plan for me. Um, marketing. What's, what's not working with my marketing? Well, am I being future-focused enough? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's just a different, a kind of a different way of thinking. That's a better way of thinking, I would say, instead of living in the past, look to the future. I mean, that makes a lot more sense than keep digging up the crap in the past because things always change in the future. So that's right. Yeah. Um, do you have, okay, so of course I'm a veteran and most of my listeners are veterans. Do you have any advice for them in our current economy on their way out of the military? So this is sort of a back to every system is perfectly designed for the results it gets. When I talk to just about everyone, um, it, the whether it's the folks who have nine, 
10 figures in wealth, the folks who are just getting started, everyone has the same pain. Am I going to be okay? Now, it's hard to relate to the people who are making a crap ton of money, but it's like more money, more problems. They just keep spending more, have more people to take care of. And so there's this underpinning of kind of anxiety. Am I going to be okay? Uh, and that's kind of part of my book is mapping out this, this, how do we get you more certainty and give you more power over your finances? Now, if we go back to 2008 and the financial crash, and we look out uh, five years later, what happened? The wealthier got wealthier. The, the, the gap between the net worth of the, say, 1% or the top 1% grew significantly compared to everyone else. And you look at another five years, it got even worse. You look at the two-year period since COVID or the three-year period, that gap grew even more, right? So, again, we could choose to be victims or we could choose to understand what is it that we're doing where we're not moving it. We're not moving up the ladder. OK, so uh, recently there was a, a banking crisis event, Silicon Valley Bank. Right? Mm-hmm. And so this is a reflection point, And I've been telling people that we're going to look five years from now and the gap is going to grow significantly again, because what happens is that. uh the majority of the population, our biases kick in. Loss aversion impacts the 99% significantly. Loss aversion. The best traders in the world uh, have uh, don't let loss aversion impact them so much. So what is loss aversion? Say you bought something for 100 bucks and it's now worth $90. $90. Loss aversion is I can't sell that because then I lose $10. And so you hold on to it until you, because you need to make your money back. But what do the best traders in the world do? They go, I'm going to sell that because there's some other investment elsewhere that's going to get me back to break even faster. All I'm oriented toward is how do I recover resources faster, in the most efficient way. But most of us are so stuck in the loss aversion that we don't take action. And that leaves us in this state where uh, we are becoming what's called exit liquidity for everyone else. So what's going to happen? The 1% or the top 1% uh, in the next three to four months, you're going to hear this thing about how there's a bunch of cash on the sidelines. Have you heard that before? There's a bunch of cash. Yeah. (laughs) That's because those who – who uh, have really worked through their biases and, and trying to design a system that they want, uh, they're exiting positions, even if they're losses, they're exiting positions to get as much cash as possible, have a high level of readiness, because they know there's a lot more panic that comes in. And, and in the next 6 to 12 months or 12 to 24 months, there's going to be things on significant discount. They're going to buy those things on discount, then price is going to start to appreciate. The rest of the market is going to jump in because they see it going up. You're going to, things get heated up again. And then they're, you bought a discount. Now you're going to sell it to the people who are uh, champing at the bit to have it. And uh, the process repeats itself. 
Yeah, I, I don't think I need to practice that loss aversion stuff. I've never, I know I buy some stocks and they're all down right now, but I've always been at the point where I don't even want to sell it until I make my money back. And all it's doing is going down more. And it's like, I've lost quite a bit of money in the stock market. So I think I need to retrain my brain. I'm glad I actually heard that because I guess I never really thought about it, honestly. I write about it in the, so we go back to 2008, right? And if you fast forward five years, you go, man, it was so obvious that real estate was going to recover. Like the science of hindsight, because over a long duration of time, real estate always goes up. It's just that if you look at a really short window, there's a bunch of volatility. It goes down. and So you're like, this is obvious. Like things were down 40%. Like there were some discounts to be had. But the fear and panic sets in where people are panic selling. The sophisticated investors, they move to cash so that they could buy these things on discount, knowing that it's going to come around long term and they're going to sell it back to the same people at a premium later. This is just the human uh, dynamic. Um, I have a principle. I call it the investor frame. And the investor frame is, given what I know today, would I buy this thing? So my business, what's it worth? Say it's worth hundred grand. If I had 100000 in cash today, would I buy it? The stock, what is it worth? Irrespective, ignoring what I paid for, if I had that uh, in cash, would I buy that stock? If the answer is no, then you go, well, what needs to be different for me to turn that into a yes? And is that something I have control over? In stocks, you don't have control over the market. So if the answer is a no, then you, you go, well, why not? Well, I'd buy this other stock that's going up faster. Okay, sell that, buy that other stock. Because the game is to recover your resources faster if you eliminate a lot of the downsides the negatives uh, and i do this for folks on their financials i look go let me look at your income your profits by month and what we see is like hey you lose money like the same two to three months every year if we just turn those to break even not where you made money you just didn't lose any money what does that do to your overall cash for the year? And it often doubles or triples how much cash they have because they lose so much and then they spend so much to try to get back to make up for it. It's like gambling and then you don't leave the table. You're like, I got to earn it back before I leave. And then you, you make it worse, right? So how can I just get back to that break even faster? Like just prevent the bad things from happening. Yeah, I might need to hire you because I apparently suck at that. <laughs> well, it's a human thing. It's a bias thing. We're all subject to it. So my whole thing is I assume that I'm I'm biased. I assume I'm going to make really bad decisions. I assume that I'm going to um, not be disciplined. And so then how do I build systems to account for that uh, rather than assuming that I'm going to work harder? Assuming that I'm going to be more disciplined. People will set New Year's resolutions. I did this, uh, at, I did this exercise with a bunch of folks. And it's a small shift that can change the whole trajectory of your life. 
Okay. I asked people, what are your New Year's resolutions? And everyone had a version of, I'm going to be more disciplined. Okay. Eat better, sleep more, sleep better. And then they're like, okay, uh, why do you feel like you need that? You're like, well, I just lacked, I lacked discipline. So uh, I'm going to be more disciplined this year. So you're like, okay, well, how are you going to do that? Like, I'm just going to be more disciplined. So like, oh, so the thing you're lacking, you're just suddenly going to have more of. No. No. <laughs> the evidence suggests that you're not going to have more of that. So what if instead of being more uh, disciplined, you find ways to be less impulsive? And what would that take for you to be less impulsive? So I got kids, you get home at the end of the day, and it's like, so I look at my phone or like turn on the TV or whatever, or, you know, you get quickly irritated with the kids and you're like, well, I need to be more disciplined. And actually the answer is, what do I need to do differently during the day so that when I get home, I have the energy so that I don't have to be disciplined. I still have that energy left over. And so it turns out I got to eliminate some crappy clients or some things I'm doing over the course of the day so that when I get home, I'm not in such a net negative that I don't have the discipline left to be the person I want to be. And so it's that sort of thinking, not be more disciplined. It's like be less impulsive. Got it. Because uh, I have six kids, and by the time I get home, I'm I'm pretty burnt, burnt out, and I don't have the energy. And, yeah, it's – I'm glad you made some good points there. I think there's some things I need to change in my life, too. I'm glad you came on here and talked about it. Um, in our current state of economy, we all know the banks have crashed. Um, stocks are down. Real estate's dropping right now. Um, where do you see the economy over the next two years? Is it going to improve? I mean, you're in this world, so you see it better than most of us. It, it, it's always difficult to make uh, predictions. The things, the thing about people who make predictions is they keep making the same prediction, and then eventually they look. Eventually, they're right. So like, there've been people who've been saying the real estate market's going to crash for like seven years. And now they're like, see, look, I told you it was going to crash. Like, yeah, you said that for seven years. Eventually you're going to be right. There's so much randomness. Like, I don't know what, uh, I don't know what Trump's going to tweet tomorrow. I don't know if Elon's going to change the logo from Dogecoin to some other coin. Like, you know, there's, there's so many random things that can happen. No disrespect to those. Like, I'm not trying to, again, yeah, I get trying you. to make a, a comment one way or another, um, but just to point out that there's people who their their decision in a single day can shift the entire market momentum. And and so it's that's what I would call randomness. So the objective really is uh, make money in all markets and all conditions that requires you to take account of your biases, try to design a system where you have as much mental sobriety as possible. So anytime I say to myself, I just have to do something different. I go on a walk or I take a nap because I'm probably in a really high probability of making the wrong decision because I'm acting from a position of pain. I call it being exploitable. When I'm feeling all this pain, like I got to do something, I can't, I can't continue like this. 
I don't know what kind of self-talk you have, but I have these moments where it's like part of that is my like <laughs> uh, just effort and hustle, and it's like a part of my personality. But sometimes that can be a really negative thing because I'm just trying to take action because I misconstrue action with productivity. People confuse the difference between uh, speed and velocity. I can go really fast, but it turns out I look back uh, a month or two later and I was just running in a circle. Like I was going, I was going, that's cool, but I was just going in a circle. So I didn't get closer to my goals, but I was, because I was just trying to take, I was confusing uh, action with productivity. Where velocity, velocity is, has a direction. And so the key is, how do I actually know if I'm making decisions that are taking me in the right direction or if I'm just making decisions so I feel like I'm doing something? So whenever you're in those moments where you're, have this urge that I have to do something, I have to do something different, this is BS, I'm not going to put up with this anymore, go on a walk or take a nap. Nice. If, if I were a sales guy, well, uh, and I'm getting on the phone with you and you're like, I have to do something different. I'm like, I'm, I'm like practically cashing that check already. Like this person wants me to sell them something. I just have to sell it in a way where they, it feels like productive action to them. So they're highly exploitable in that moment. And so that's the danger zone. The danger zone. Yeah, the danger zone where you're uh, in that moment where you feel like you have to do something. You don't have to do anything. You get to set all ignoring loss, and you get to set the rules. You get to set, uh, if you run a business, you get to make up all the rules. I call it the commissioner frame. Now, the market may not like your rules, but you still get to set them. And so you don't have to do anything. You're choosing to do and uh, and the danger with that is that you might be gambling in a way that doesn't where the, the house is really, really likely to win. And that's not how extraordinary uh, people operate. That's nice to hear all this. Uh, I'm going to have to go back and watch this myself. You gave a lot of good information and I really do appreciate it. It's I, I think you gave so much information. People can start changing their mindset. and Start taking a look, taking a look at how they're doing things because I know I need to change. Because um, I'm trying to change my entire life right now. Because I'm tired of, be, of being stuck in the rat race, like you mentioned earlier. And it's time for uh, it's time for me to change, especially for my six kids, and time for me to build my empire for them. So that way I have them to pass off, and they can look at me and be proud someday. Yeah. Well, no doubt you're on that path. I would just say get really clear on the one thing. The one thing that you need to do. Um, we tend to be conditioned to maximize, try to do 20 things at once. Mm-hmm. And um, there's something called the theory of constraints. There's a bunch of math I could show you, but uh, when you try to do more than one thing at the same time, you increase the probability that you won't achieve either, any of the objectives. And so each additional thing you add, you decrease the probability that you're going to get anything. And well, so, 
I am going to have to have you come back on sometime and start picking your brain more because you got way more information than I can take in at one time, and I appreciate that. Um, you're one of the smartest people I've had on so far, and I'm going to continue reading your book, uh, trying to learn more from you, and I'm happy you came on today and shared some of your some of your expertise and some of your knowledge. Um, yeah, it's time for me to go take a nap and change my change my mindset too. Well, people around you are going to get triggered when they start hearing that you took a nap because they don't give themselves permission to do that. But the results a year from now and five years from now will be they're going to go like they're going to scrutinize you now. And then later they're going to say, of course, Stephen had that happen. And the expectations come. So you just know that's part of the game. You get scrutinized and then you have expectations. Appreciate you having me on. Uh, like I said, I come from a family of vets, so I'm always happy to contribute any way I can. And I appreciate you coming on. Like I said, my whole drive is my kids, my family, and the more I learn from you, the more it's going to benefit them in the long run. So I appreciate you being on the Swandingo Files. Uh, time for nap time for everybody, and we're going to keep the kids quiet, though, I promise you all. Everybody take care. Bye. Well, folks, that's all we have for today's episode of the Swandingo Files. I hope you've enjoyed this journey with your host, Stephen Swanson, as much as he enjoys recording it. Remember, transitioning from military life to civilian life is tough. But with a little bit of grit, a dash of humor, and a lot of determination, you can overcome any obstacle. So until next time, keep on trucking, and keep Swandingoing.